You are listening to a sermon by New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Well, good morning. If you are willing and able, would you stand this morning as we read God's word? This is a reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You may be seated. Join me in praying uh, for our sermon this morning. Father, we come before you as a people who are in need. Lord, unless you are here with us this morning, unless your, your spirit breaks through the natural hardness of our heart, or we will be unable to hear from you, to experience your goodness this morning. I pray that you would be present with us. God, I do not want myself or anyone here to leave here unchanged by your word. And so, Lord, as, as I speak, as we listen together to what you have to say, would we be mindful of the supreme privilege we have of possessing your word, your revelation, your message to us, that you have not left us wandering in darkness and ignorance, that you have shown us the way to eternal life. Lord, we know that our brothers and sisters around the world are meeting in places where it is difficult to find the word of God, where possessing the Bible could be dangerous. So may we be mindful of that this morning, the supreme privilege that we have of meeting freely, of listening freely to your word. God, speak to us. Change us, work through me by the power of the Spirit to deliver what you would have me say for your purposes, for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Well, one of my favorite little moments in the Bible is in the first chapter of Acts. So to set the stage, uh, Jesus' disciples have seen him crucified on the cross, And now they've seen him raised from the dead. So they've seen the one that they've received as the king, as the Messiah, as the son of David. He's conquered death. And so for 40 days, he's spending time with them. As they travel around, he's teaching them. They're watching him do more miracles. And you get the kind of sense that as they're spending time with him over the course of those 40 days, there's a little bit of an expectation. They're kind of like, okay, you've been raised from the dead. And finally, in Acts 1, at the end of these 40 days, uh, one of the disciples puts in a word what probably uh, all of the disciples were thinking. And so he says, Lord, are you, know, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's kind of like a little push. Like, Jesus, you know, the, you're the son of David, right? The, the throne of David's empty. The Roman Empire still reigns over us. You've been raised from the dead. Is it, is it time now? Well, 
Jesus gives a, a somewhat cryptic answer. He says, kind of, no, not right now. And he says a few more things. And then he kind of like spreads out his hands. And he goes, whoop, <laughs> raises up into heaven on the clouds. And he's gone. And Jesus' disciples are just staring up at the place where he has gone. And then two angels appear, and they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here staring up into the sky? Now, this has always struck me as a, a bit of an unfair question. I mean, wh- how would you answer that? We, we just saw a guy go up into the sky. Why do you think we're staring up there? Uh, but the, the, the confusion of the disciples in this scene, the, the recalibration of their expectations... Uh, really connects into what we are going to talk to this morning. Because Jesus declined to take an earthly kingdom. He did not do as they expected and reestablish the earthly kingdom of Israel. And because of that, it required a recalibration of the way that his disciples thought about what the kingdom of God was. And how they, as members of that kingdom, were to interact with the kingdoms in which they lived. In other words, it it required them to rethink how how they acted in the political world in which they lived. Now, I know for a lot of you, this is your introduction to me. You've never met me. I've met some of you, but definitely not all of you. I'm looking forward to getting to know more of you, hopefully. Uh, so as uh, Pastor Robin said, my, my wife and I, we are missionaries with MTW. We are headed to Eastern Europe. Um, and over, the, over the, my last year at seminary, I'm going to be serving here. I've been, I've been an intern here for the last six months. Now, of course, uh, with that in mind, it's kind of fitting that uh, Pastor Ted has assigned me for you know, my first sermon here at New Life, the very non-controversial topic of politics in the church. <laughs> Wasn't that nice of him? So it, just, you know, any and all angry emails, you can direct those to Pastor Ted, right? <laughs> now, I, I, I'm really hoping uh, that, that what I have to say this morning, I, I know uh, politics can be a contentious issue, but what, what I want to deliver to you this morning is just the word of God. I want to tell you what this says. Now, th- there's going to be some freedom to uh, uh, apply this uh, according to uh, our different convictions about politics. So I'm not advocating for a political party, a political candidate, uh, a particular political position. I just want to look at what God's word says, and I want God's word to challenge you. No matter what you think right now about political issues, about how we are to interact with the state, as we read this, God's word should change the way you think. It should shake you up. I mean, is, is that not why you came here this morning to listen to God's word? To be challenged? To be transformed by what it says? So that's my hope. I hope that as, as we read God's word together this morning, that everyone here would be changed by it, challenged by it, uh, hopefully in positive ways that would lead to a, a flourishing of, of God's church uh, in the world in which we live. All right, so what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about three things. First, we need to look at why does Peter see the need to address the issue of politics? What has changed so that it's required that we examine how Christians interact with the state? Okay, because this is, a, this is an issue that, both, that Jesus talks about, that Paul talks about in Romans 13, and that Peter talks about here. So something has happened with the advent of Jesus that requires us to reimagine how we think about politics. Second, we need to ask, 
Well, what does Peter actually say? What does he tell his audience? Uh, remember who he's speaking to? He's speaking to uh, Christians, uh, a mixed group of, of Jewish and Gentile Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Well, what does he say to them about how to interact with the Roman Empire? And then the third thing we need to look at is how do we take what uh, Peter says to a people living at a different time under a very different government and a very different culture? How do we take that and apply it to our own position as faithful Christians living in God's kingdom in 21st century America? All right, so to summarize, why does Peter address this topic at all? What does Peter say to his audience? How do we take that and apply it into our context? And what I think we will find is this, that while our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven demands our highest loyalty, it also frees us to live as the best possible citizens of whatever kingdom we find ourselves temporarily in on earth. All right, so let's begin. We're going to look first. Why does Peter see the need to address this at all? Well, I want to bring out two things that Peter has already talked about in this letter. So I want to remind you of two things that Peter said earlier. First of all, uh, in the first chapter, Peter said that uh, God's people have been born again into a new and living hope, and as a result, they are heirs. They have an inheritance kept for them in heaven, which can never be taken away from them. So remember that first, that word inheritance. God's people have an inheritance. The second thing I want to remind you of, just a few verses before the, one that we, the ones that we are reading today, uh, what Pastor Ted talked about just a couple weeks ago, uh, in describing the, the people of God, you know, if you remember, he talked about how they're living stones being built up into a temple. And then he uses this particular phrase. He says that God's people are a holy nation. God's people are a holy nation. Now, if you were a a, a Jewish background Christian at at the time, reading this letter from Peter, when you read that phrase, holy nation, your ears would immediately have pricked up because Peter is actually quoting here. It's It's a direct verbatim quotation from the Old Testament, from the book of Exodus, another place where God took a group of people and formed them by covenant, into a nation. When he took the people out of, out of Egypt and then on Mount Sinai, he said, you are a holy nation. So Peter, in this letter, is, is making a connection between the formation of God's people in Israel as a nation and now what is happening in the new covenant through Jesus Christ to the church of God. And to... To, to bring that out a little bit more, let's think for a second about what a nation is. Now, what is required for a nation to have existence? I think there are three things that make up a nation. You can think of this kind of in our, our own context as people living in the nation of the United States. First thing that's required is there it has to be land or territory. A nation requires land for it to exist. The second thing is that a nation requires citizens. It requires people to populate that land. And then the third thing that is required for a nation to have existence is it needs a covenant or a constitution that kind of forms the people as a distinct nation. For us as Americans, what uh, forms us as a people uh, delineates our relationship to each other and then our relationship to our government. 
is the U.S. Constitution. <clears throat> so uh, those three things, a, a people, a land, and a constitution. Now let's think about the nation of Israel, the, the nation from which these Jewish Christians would have come and which formed their idea of what it meant to be a nation. Where do we see those three elements? What are the people that constituted that nation? Well, it's the genetic descendants of Abraham. The descendants of Abraham according to the flesh. This distinct people that have been brought from slavery out of Egypt and into uh, to, the, to Mount Sinai. The land, or the territory, is the promised land. The land that God had said to Abraham that he would give to his descendants forever. So there's people and there's a land. And then the covenant or the constitution is the Mosaic covenant, the law of Moses. This constituted the, the people. It, it, it made them as a distinct land, uh, a distinct nation, excuse me. So uh, God gave the people at Mount Sinai a law. The law defined them as a people. It said to them that if they uh, obey, if they are loyal and faithful to the covenant which he has given them, he will bless them. <clears throat> this is uh, the nation that God built in Israel. Now, there were problems with the covenant, with the constitution of, 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 of the people. And that problem was human sin. So human sin disabled the constitution from fulfilling its purpose for the nation of Israel. They were unable to remain faithful to the covenant because of the issue of human sin. In many ways, they reenacted the experience that Adam had had. They disobeyed the covenant, and as a result, they are sent into exile as Adam is exiled from the garden. Now, when that happens, God uh, is determined to form his people into a nation, and so he makes a promise to his people as they are going into exile that he is going to institute a new covenant. He is going to form the people via a new covenant that corrects what was deficient in the old covenant. And this, brothers and sisters, is what Peter says has happened through Jesus Christ. So in the covenant that is sealed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the problem of sin, which made the old covenant deficient, is decisively dealt with. The sin of the people is forgiven. They are born again into new life. And in being born again, they are formed into a people. And now let's take a look at this new holy nation that Peter describes in this letter. Let's take a look at our framework of a nation. Let's examine it through that, uh, as we did the, the uh, old nation. First of all, there is a people. Who are the people of this new covenant nation? Well, it's no longer the genetic descendants of Abraham. Now it's all the descendants of Abraham by faith. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. A people taken from every tribe, tongue, and language on earth. All who call on the name of the Lord are members of this new covenant community. They are now people of God and they form a nation. That's the people of this nation. Second, the covenant it's the new covenant, as I've already talked about. The new covenant sealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The new covenant which we celebrate in the sacraments. We celebrated the new covenant when we practiced baptism this morning. It affirmed, affirms us as covenant members. 
And then we, we memorialize it, we remember it in the, in the body and blood of Christ, which we eat month by month. This is the covenant that forms us as a people. Now, what is the land of the new covenant people? And this is where we return to inheritance. Because you see, the kingdom that we will inherit, the land that we will live in as God's covenant people, is the new heavens and the new earth. It is not in this physical world now in which we live. The land that we will live in is a land that will be recreated by God in the fullness of time at the consummation when Christ returns. This is the land that we will inherit. This is the land that God's covenant people will dwell in. It's a land that we do not yet possess. And this is what makes the nation that Peter talks about here distinct and different from every nation that has ever existed. In fact, this is a radical reimagination of what religion even means. This idea has never existed in the history of the world until the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That a people could be a nation with a, a worshiping in a covenant sense the same God and yet be scattered among the nations of the world. An entirely new idea. But you can see why this means that Peter has a new issue to address. Because if we are heirs of a land that we do not yet live in, if we are a distinct nation, yet we live scattered among all the nations of the world, then we need to understand how to live as strangers awaiting the land that we will inherit in the secular world, the secular kingdoms in which we inhabit now. It's a new problem. That's why Peter needs to address it. We are heirs of this land, heirs of the new heaven and earth. We do not yet live in it. So, that's why Peter needs to address this topic. Now, what does Peter actually say to his audience? Well, we're going to look at what Peter actually says around three words. Three words that occur. All three of these words are often used in a Greco-Roman context to talk about politics. So Peter is kind of using the language that people would use uh, when they're talking about uh, you know, the philosophy of politics. How should government work? Uh, that kind of thing. He's using uh, words taken from those sort of conversations. These are the three words we're going to look at. The first word is submit. The second word is doing good. I know that's technically two words, but in in the Greek it's one word, okay, so go with it. Doing good, good doing. Uh, And then the third word that we're going to look at is freedom. Okay, so submit is the passive responsibility. Uh, Good doing or doing good is the active responsibility. And then freedom is sort of the perspective that we have on both of those responsibilities. So first of all, submit. What does Peter say? He says, submit to human institutions as to the Lord. Now that phrase, human institutions, is kind of a technical word. What it means is something that a a, a political body sets up in order to ensure that a a society is well-governed. So in in the Greco-Roman context, there was an ideal of, of good governance. A good government should ensure that society is well-ordered, that it is stable, and that everybody in it is able to flourish. 
That's sort of the ideal. Obviously, Roman society fell far, far short of that, as every society has. But when they would talk about it in an ideal sense, that's what they would talk about. And these human institutions were things that emperors set up, or governors or rulers set up, in order to execute that. So example of human institutions might be law courts, some sort of uh, regulatory bodies, uh, governors, uh, anything that's set up in order to ensure that society is well-ordered and flourishing. Now Peter says to be subject to those, to place yourself under the authority of human institutions. And, and, And the the word uh, or the, the phrase that's really key for understanding the grounds for why we should do that is Peter says, submit to human institutions as to the Lord. Now, I, I believe this passage should be read in conjunction with a very similar passage in, in, in Romans 13, uh, which, which Paul addresses the same issue and basically says uh, more or less the same thing. But he makes more clear, Paul does in Romans that the human institutions that we are to submit to, that the church is to submit to, are ultimately established by God. Ultimately, because God has sovereign authority over all the kingdoms of men, because he puts emperors into place, because he installs and removes human authority, if anybody possesses some measure of authority, it is only because God has allowed it to have that authority. And that therefore, human institutions are established by God and our submission to them is ultimately not to the, not to the emperor or the, the human person that set it up, but ultimately it's to God. The image that comes to mind for me is always like at the Super Bowl when the, the team wins and they go to hand the trophy and they give the trophy to the owner, right? And everybody's like cheering are they cheering for the owner? <laughs> no, they're not cheering for the owner. They could care less who, who the owner is. They're cheering ultimately for the team. That's kind of the idea. When we submit to these human institutions, we're not doing so because we, we love the emperor so much. We're doing so because God has installed them and we owe allegiance to God. All right, so that's the word submit. The second word we want to look at is good doing. Good doing or doing good. Again, this is a, a technical phrase. And you can see how it's used technically uh, earlier in the passage when uh, Peter says that uh, governors are set up to punish those who do evil and reward those who do good. So a, an evildoer in this context is anyone that disturbs the stability, the uh, well-ordering or the flourishing of society and a good doer is the opposite. Anyone who promotes the stability, anyone who encourages the flourishing of society is a good doer. Now Peter tells us in very strong language here that we are to do good. He says it is the will of God that we should do good. What that means is that it is God's will for us as we live temporarily in this kingdom, the kingdoms that we live in, as we live here, that we are to be the best possible citizens. That's essentially what it means. We are to do as good as we possibly can. Now remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to uh, Roman uh, like inhabitants. I'm not going to say citizens, because probably most of his audience were not even citizens of the Roman Empire. They lived under Roman authority. Now, it, 
our government today, we often you know, agree or disagree with various aspects of it. The Roman government was cruel. The Roman government was deeply corrupt. There were so many problems with Roman governance. It fell so far short of the ideal. So that's the context in which Peter is saying, submit to governing authorities and strive to be good doers, doers of good in the society in which you live. Promote the flourishing of society. Promote the well-ordering of it, the stability of it, the justice of the world in which you live. And the motivation for that is that people that have something against Christianity, people that want to tear down Christianity, will find themselves silenced Because there's nothing bad that they can say. They can't find anything to criticize in the conduct as citizens of God's people in the Roman Empire. They will be forced to either lie and slander God's people, in which case God's people will be vindicated at the end because there will be a day when they they will be forced to admit that they were lying. Or else they will be silenced if they are honest. They won't be able to say anything at all. So that is uh, good doing or or doing good. The third word we want to look at is freedom. Freedom. Now, we we really have to to carefully understand the word freedom because when we talk about freedom in a political context, all sorts of ideas spring into our mind. And in fact, I think Peter deliberately uses this word freedom because he wants to draw a contrast between political ideas of freedom and Freedom that we have as citizens in God's kingdom. Because those are two different things. Now, freedom in the Greek political context, I'm going to tell you that it meant four things. And these things might be familiar because our, our ideas of political freedom basically come, you know, ultimately they originate from, from the Greeks. Uh, you know, they're a little different now. They've been elaborated on, but uh, ultimately Greek ideas about political freedom are where our ideas about political freedom come from. So for a Greek listening to this, if you say freedom in a political context, it means four things. First of all, it means the right to a fair trial in court. Political freedom meant uh, the right not to have their property arbitrarily seized or taken from them. It meant uh, freedom to work where one pleased to do the job that one pleased. And then fourth, it was freedom of movement. A free person could move freely uh, around uh, the Greco-Roman world. Now, I know for a fact that this is not what Peter means when he says freedom. Why do I know that? Because the people that he was talking to, that he was speaking to, that he's addressing, not all of them had political freedom in the Roman Empire. Some of his audience were slaves, Some of his audience were non-citizens. Some of his audience were women. And all three of those categories had limited political freedoms. And yet Peter says that they are free. It recalls in in, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 7, Paul talks to slaves and he says, if you are a slave, but you are in Christ, you are a free man. So what does it mean to have your political freedoms limited as much of his audience was and yet be a free person? Well, it's freedom that we have as citizens, not of an earthly kingdom, but citizens of a heavenly kingdom. It's freedom that I I think we can summarize in two ways. First of all, it's freedom from condemnation. 
What was the barrier that stood at the end of all men's life and would prevent them from entering into the kingdom of heaven? It was the sentence of condemnation for sin that stood over them. This, for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, has been lifted by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. This is the most essential freedom. You cannot be free if you are facing, at the end of your life, eternal condemnation. The second kind of freedom that we have as citizens uh, of the new heaven and the new earth, freedom from the controlling power of sin. So one of these freedoms is a a freedom that has bearing on our future destiny, and one of these freedoms is a freedom that has bearing on our present experience. There is no tyrant on earth, no political power that could be placed over you that is as oppressive and exacting as the power of sin. Sin is a tyrant that controls every action, every motion, every thought, everything felt and done. This is why Peter says here, live as free men, but do not use your freedom to do evil. Both Paul and Peter, when they're talking about freedom, they specify that it is a freedom from sin, a freedom to do good. And therefore, it is a freedom that is synonymous with slavery to God. It's a a very... Uh, at first brush, contradictory idea that these two things are equated, freedom and slavery. And yet every action, every action we take is either an action of obedience to God or a sin. And therefore, freedom from sin is inevitably a slavery to God. And this is not an inconsistent idea. Okay, if you are in prison... And then you're, you're freed from prison around the world. And someone's like, well, now you're just a prisoner in the open world. It doesn't make any sense. The, the thing that, that was imprisoning you, you've been liberated from. And sure, now, now you have no choice but to be out in the open world. But that is freedom. And so obedience to God for Peter and for Paul, for the authors of the New Testament, is liberation from sin. Liberation from sin meant obedience to God. Those two things are equated. This is what freedom means. And when when Peter says live as free people, it's a freedom that's available to the slave, a freedom available to a Roman woman, a freedom available even to a non-citizen. There was a truer and more perfect freedom because it was eternal. It could not be removed. And though for a season, God's people may voluntarily or involuntarily enter into a limitation upon their political freedoms. If they, for a season, may lay down that freedom, it does not change the essential, eternal, unbreakable freedom they have as citizens of God's kingdom. So, that's what our text says. Let's move on to our third point. How does this apply to our own lives? This is where the angry emails start, I think. Just kidding. Uh, How does this apply to our own lives? Now, I want to start by saying these are kind of general principles. Uh, We can uh, disagree to some extent on how exactly to live these out. Uh, And I, I, 
I will sometimes get specific uh, and sometimes not. Uh, it's not from, you know, I'd love to engage with anyone that want to talk more about specific issues. Um, but yeah, so uh, let me start by, by, let's talk about submit. Okay, what does it mean for us to submit? Now, I, I want to talk about uh, speed limits. Okay, now I don't know about you, uh, but when, when I'm driving, anyone that drives slower than me is just way too cautious and is endangering everyone on their road with their overcaution. And anyone that's driving faster than me is just an utter maniac who is endangering everyone by their unsafe driving. I alone have discovered the perfect balance of speed and safety. <laughs> right, so just, just follow me. Go the same speed as me. No, I, I'm only kidding. I mean, how, how many of us secretly think that in our hearts as we're driving, right? Uh, in all seriousness, oh, have you ever wondered why when you cross the border from California to Arizona, it suddenly becomes safe and wise to drive 71 miles per hour? Where before it was uh, forbidden and unwise? Well, there's a reason for that. Friends, most of the, the laws, most of the regulations that we live under as strangers living in this foreign kingdom, uh, most of the regulations and laws that we live under, they, they're, they're to some extent arbitrary. There's not an essential moral principle at stake in a speed limit. It's just that human institutions, ultimately under the authority of God, have uh, applied wisdom to a specific area of public safety and have come up with a regulation. And this is what God is asking us to submit to. And friends, it's not just that he's asking us to submit to it. It's that we're to submit to it as we would to the Lord. When God gives commands, how do we obey them? Reluctantly? Complaining? Grumbling? No. We submit to the Lord with cheerfulness, with joy, with self-surrender, abandoning our own need to exert our wisdom over against the wisdom of the regulation that is upon us. We assume that if God has instituted something, that it is for our good and it is wise, and we submit to it on that basis. Now, this sort of submission, it can be difficult, especially when we don't see uh, fully the wisdom, perhaps we even disagree with the wisdom of a regulation that uh, the state has uh, uh, chosen to uh, impose upon us. That is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you agree with it. It doesn't matter if you think it's wise. It doesn't matter if you like the person that put it into place. The command is the same. Do you think, do you think the Roman Christians liked Nero? Do you think they liked the governors that were over them? Trust me, they, they did not. <clears throat> That's not required. Now, obviously, this has to be balanced with the fact that there are times in which states that we live under, governments that we live under, will impose regulations that to obey would cause us to come in conflict with obedience to God. So I, I, am, I am aware of that. I'm not denying that. However, I think we need to think very carefully if we are contemplating disobedience to a regulation that the state has put into place, we need to be very sure very sure that it is in conflict with the command of God. 
Because to rebel against the state is to rebel against God. And if we're wrong, it's kind of serious to rebel against God. Anyway, point is, we don't have to agree to regulations and laws to submit to them with joy and cheerfulness. Though we are not obligated to submit where it would conflict with the commands of God, we need to be very careful because rebellion against the state is rebellion against God. Right? I say that with fear and trembling, knowing that it takes nuance to navigate these issues uh, as, as faithful Christians. We should show charity where we disagree. Okay, second thing, doing good, good doing. This one's uh, maybe more positive to talk about because it's our, it's our active participation in, the, in the, the state in which we live, the government in which we are under. Remember I said that that phrase is basically means that we are to be the best possible citizens in the, in the state in which we live. You know, as, as temporary strangers and aliens on earth, God has called us uh, as a, a model, as an example, as a testimony to the goodness of God, to live as the best possible citizens we can in the country in which we live. Well, that's us in the United States of America in the 21st century. We are to live as the best possible citizens so that the people around us that want to slander the name of Christ, that want to bring down Christianity, they will be forced to either lie about us or they will be silenced. That is the the model that we are to follow. That is the, the, the ideal that we are to strive towards. And so, what does it mean then to promote the well-ordering, the flourishing of society? Well, where we see suffering, we seek to alleviate it. Where we see poverty, we seek to remedy it. Where we see injustice, we seek justice. Now, all, all of these are, uh, allow for, I think, latitude of interpretation on how exactly to do that. But friends, we as Christians, it is the will of God for our lives that we be the best possible citizens. That the existence of suffering, injustice, poverty, the existence of uh, the marginalization of people, people uh, that are missed by our society, their very existence should cry out to us that we would long to see this world as good as it possibly can be. Now, we know we will never achieve sinlessness personally in this life, yet we strive against sin in the same way we know this world will never be perfectly ordered. It'll never be perfectly just, yet we strive against injustice. That is uh, the meaning of this command. To be good doers in the imperfect world in which we live. Third and finally, let's, let's end by considering what it means to live as free people. Well, first of all, I think it means that we live with a certain detachment from the worldly kingdom in which we live. If we are free as citizens of God's kingdom... Then, then we have an essential separation uh, that, that sets us apart from the uh, secular, non-Christian people around us and, and their uh, at-homeness in, in this world. You see, we have more in common, more essential connection 
with believers in countries like Iran, China, Russia than we do with our our, our non-Christian neighbors next door. We should feel a more living and vital connection with the church of God, which is our true home. That is our essential citizenship. And it requires us, uh, even as we strive to live as good citizens in this country, it requires us to remain detached from it in an essential way. Because it is not our home. It cannot be our home. Another thing to consider, I I want to commend to you the example of Jesus in his use of freedom. So we love our our freedoms here uh, in in a political sense or in a personal sense. Uh, You know, different states and and countries uh, in our world have different degrees of political and personal freedom. We have a, a relatively high degree here in the United States. But think, friends, for a moment about the example of Jesus Christ, who was the most free person who ever lived. And yet for the sake of his people, he laid down his freedom. Because we are free in the kingdom of God, we have the freedom, even the responsibility to lay down our political freedoms here. I, you know, my wife and I are going to go to a place that is less politically free than here in which our, our freedom to, to worship, to uh, religiously engage with people, is limited. Uh, laying down our freedoms in order to see the kingdom of God grow and expand, that is the model that Jesus Christ lays out for us. Cling not to earthly freedoms because you possess eternal freedom. <clears throat> and third, and finally, and we'll end here, Let's remember who we are. Remember where we started. This, this whole topic needs to be engaged because we are inheritors of something that we do not yet possess. We are citizens of a kingdom in which we do not yet live. And everything we think about our interaction with the, the world around us, with the government, with the state, everything has to be controlled by that essential fact that we do not belong here. That what we are looking forward to is in the future. That it is a dangerous thing to make our homes here on earth. Because what we are looking for is the day The day which is coming when after the kingdom of God has been preached to the ends of the earth, after every citizen of it has been called forth out of darkness, out of bondage, and into the glorious light of God's kingdom, when that has occurred, then we will look up again at the clouds and see, as those angels told his disciples, the one who you have seen go up will come down in the same way. And at that time, the heavens and the earth will be remade. A new heaven and earth will come. And we, as citizens of God's kingdom, will enter finally our inheritance, the kingdom from which there is no injustice, there is no suffering, there is no sorrow. Those things have been banished forevermore. That is our hope. That is our anticipation. That is what we will inherit. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Well, before we... Before we move into um, the rest of our service, uh, we've been taking some time to kind of reflect on and, and, and think about some of the themes that um, we've talked about in our sermon. I think that there's, hopefully, 
been given, uh, I've been giving you a, a lot to think about, but I want you to reflect uh, on, on the nature of freedom as, as God's people. Freedom from condemnation. Freedom from sin. The reality that as, as God's people who have been saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we've been brought into an essential freedom that is bringing us an inheritance in the future. This is who we are, and this must uh, control the way that we think about everything in our lives. So take a few minutes, uh, pray and reflect. Well, Father, we, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. As we have gathered here this morning, your people, your covenant members, taken out from the world, we we gather in anticipation of the kingdom which is coming. In some ways, in some senses, here as we gather to worship, we are already, already entering into the kingdom of heaven. And yet, O oh Lord, we know too that it is something yet coming. Father, we want the way that we interact with the government, the way that we interact with the institutions which exist over us, which you have placed over us, we want it to reflect uh, the freedom that we have as, as your covenant people. We want it to be a testimony to the world around us of the reality of God, of your existence, of your goodness. We wanted to give space, Lord, that we may proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That those that hate you would be silenced. Lord, that those that hate you even would be converted unto you. Lord, that is our longing. And, and, and God, I pray that as we think through these things, that we would be challenged. Lord, we want to submit to the human institutions not because they have some innate, intrinsic goodness, but because you have instituted them over us for our good. Lord, we want to seek not only to submit to them, but as good citizens, to see them transformed in ways that conform them more to the reality of God to the law of God, the morality uh, which you have instituted. But Lord, would you do that work through us as your people? And God, I pray that every heart here would be comforted this morning. They'd be comforted and invited in to the kingdom of God. That is what we preach. That is what we look for. That is what we hope for. As we pray As we worship this morning, may your spirit fill us. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.